All those in the foyer, make your way in. We're about to begin um, what I've told you before is, I believe, the most important thing we've done in the history of our church. I believe it is uh, not just strategic, but timely. And the phrase the Lord dropped in my heart about this series is, how can we contend for a faith that we cannot articulate? And our goal is through this series and the discussing of it that you will be so clear on what the gospel is and the gospel is not that you might, standing against a man that has been a theologian for years who believes in a false gospel, we, as we view ourselves in our simplicity, may be able to stand against him and say unto him, uh, the word of the Lord says, the Bible declares. I want to read this to you, and then Jason's going to give you an introduction about what you ought to be thinking and feeling during this, which I think will be helpful along the way. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. Paul says this about the church at Corinth, and it echoes your pastor's heart this morning. For I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I've espoused you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you would bear with him, which means you would put up with him and it. This documentary runs parallel viewpoints on what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. On the inerrancy of scripture and on one that is stripped of perfection and of its power. One viewpoint's theology is experience-based and one is truth-based. One appeals to our carnal understanding and feelings and the other appeals to our inner man. One makes a human argument, the other declares a divine message. One maximizes man and diminishes God. The other minimizes man and increases God. One is lost in relativism and the other is secure and at peace in the truth. One openly declares that the gospel cannot be identified and the other declares it plainly, simply and accurately. One's goal is to make the world a better place. The other is to reconcile man to God. And one side actually separates themselves from God and the other adopts them into his family. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The message of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And since that is the case, there is an immediate temptation on the part of those who preach the gospel to try then to diminish and remove the difficult parts to have a broader appeal. That is not us. We want to preach Christ as he is revealed as the scriptures declare him to be, no dilution, no distortion, and no pollution. Right before we begin our video here, Jason's going to give you some things that you're going to find very encouraging. Say, oh, that's why I felt this way. So come on, Jay. Good morning, church family. So the first thing I want to tell you this morning is that not everything that you hear come out of the mouth of one of these theologians or book writers or human secularists is false. Some of the things you'll say, isn't that right? Yes, that one portion is right. But just like we don't pull one scripture out of context, 
We don't take the one thing that that person said right and then believe everything they shovel on afterwards. So if you find yourself also wondering, what is this person's position? Like, I can't really tell. They're not being clear here. They're saying some things that sound right, and I'm not really sure about what he just said there, though. It'll be incremental. Everything's not exposed all at once. Uh, One guy that turns out to be very lost in his beliefs, uh, the first segment of this video that we'll watch today, I wasn't sure where he was going to land. I was like, it sounds like his story could go either way. So I want to encourage you, you're not the only one that thinks, isn't some of that right? Our job, as Paul told Timothy, is to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to know what is right from wrong, but Spurgeon told us discernment is not just knowing what is right from what is wrong. It is knowing what is right from what is almost right. Don't let the almost rights pull you in and confuse you. Also, don't let the credentials of some of these people intimidate you. I'm a doctor in theology that's been preaching for 25 years. Well, if you've been preaching the doctrine of demons for 25 years, then I can stand next to you and confidently say that you are wrong, even if I am a high school dropout, which I am. Okay? So, you may leave with some questions today, like, why am I so confused? You, you may leave uh, thinking, well, where do we go from here? Let me encourage you. Today we're showing you a little segment, okay? We're going to make a cake over the next six weeks. Today we're breaking some eggs into a bowl, maybe throwing in some flour and sugar. It isn't going to look anything like a cake at the end of today. If you leave confused and frustrated on some points, that's encouragement to come back. That's encouragement to continue with us through this series as things are made clear. Because at the end, there will be the cake. There will be a very pretty cake, and you will be able to confidently stand up and say, I know the true gospel of the Bible. I know the true God of the Bible, and I am confident in my salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So that's just to kind of prepare you for what's going on here, uh, what you're about to see. Don't try to eat the entire buffet in one sitting. We are here to talk through this, to fellowship, and on the other side of it, to come out with a solid, firm conviction and foundational framework, which we know our gospel stands on. So I am uh, excited to get started with you guys, and we're going to go ahead and kick off the video, I suppose. So uh, we'll be back up shortly to talk some more. I survey the wondrous cross. You need to understand that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Given that that is the case, there is an immediate temptation on the part of the proclaimer of the good news to try then to diminish, if not remove, the difficult parts. In a sense, you're creating a Christian message that's warm, kind, and popular for contemporary culture, but it's frankly, according to this critic, unbiblical and historically unreliable. That's true, isn't it? I'm concerned that people today don't know who God is. 
Sometimes when I hear people speak about God, I feel like an atheist. The God they speak of, I just don't believe in. You know, people say, like, when did you lose your faith? I'm like, it started 15 minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Immediately encountered stuff in Scripture that I was like, that makes no sense to me. When we say Christ died for our sins, do we mean that God required the murder of his son in order to forgive? No, that maligns the character of God. It is frightening to me that the doctrine most loved by believers through church history, the only doctrine that gives me complete and solid hope, so many modern writers today hate. I had this one experience where I was in a sanctuary of a big Lutheran church speaking to their hundreds of confirmation students and all the parents in the room. And I said, raise your hand if you've ever been told Jesus died for your sins. And of course, everybody raised their hands. And so then I said, all right, now I want all the parents to explain to your confirmation student how does that work exactly? Like by what cosmic mechanism does the death of Jesus take care of your personal sins and I could hear the groan like there was a groan that went across this full sanctuary of hundreds of people because all these adults were like I don't know how it works I just know it's true Love so amazing so Church family, would you stand with me? As reverent as you know how to be, would you close your eyes this morning? Father, we posture our heart in the truest humility that we know how to do. When that man said that he was in a large church, and when he asked how could Jesus' death on the cross pay for their sins, and they groaned, May there never be such a groan in this church. May the light of your countenance be seen on our face, the word of God in our mouth, and confidence that cannot be misunderstood or withstood. Open the scales of our eyes that we might see more clearly, that we might know more deeply, and that we might live out more fully this gospel message into this lost and perverse and dying world. Meet with us today, O oh God, I pray. Rewrite the story of your son in our heart anew and afresh. Let it be foremost and preeminent in our life, I pray. By the power of your spirit, let it be so today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Progressive Christianity actually changed my life in a radical way. I grew up in the church, grew up in a family that really had a genuine love for Jesus, genuine love for the Bible, and it wasn't by any measure perfect. My family is not perfect, and the churches I grew up in were not perfect. But I didn't really go through any doubt as a young child, or even as an adult. I never experienced doubts 
about the existence of God, about the truthfulness of Christianity, about the reliability of the Bible. I just believed those things and spent some time in the Christian music business in a group called Zoe Girl. We toured the country and even certain parts of the world singing about Jesus to young girls and to young people. And that was something that was very real for me. Every Christian I know sort of is on some kind of a journey. I grew up among Christians. My dad is Tony Campolo, a famous Christian. And I thought my dad was wonderful. And I didn't become a Christian until I was 15 years old. And it wasn't because like I hated my father, or I was a rebellious kid. It was just that I didn't really believe in God. So neither my wife nor myself were raised in Christian homes. I was raised by a, a nominally Christian mother and an atheist father and from a very early age decided that I was an atheist as well. When I first became a Christian, I was crushed under the conviction of sin. And my selfishness was hurting my marriage, was hurting my family. And God opened my eyes to that in a very, in a very painful way. I, I mean, I was a nice kid. I, I wanted to make the world a better place. And the church seemed to me to be a vehicle to do that. It seemed to me like, it, was, it felt like the only game in town. Like, if you want to make the world a better place, this is the way you do it. And so they, they kind of had me at hello. I walked in, I was like, I love this community. I was so attracted to it. And what attracted me more than anything to the Christian faith was the truth of God's word. It was the first time I'd ever read his word. And I had no church community. I had no friends. I didn't have a positive support group. I had a Bible that I read in the dark every night while I put my son to sleep. I still didn't believe in God, but I wanted to be part of the community so badly that I sort of went along. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say you gotta fake it till you make it. And so like I faked it. All that supernatural stuff, that wasn't the attraction to Christianity for me. That was the price of admission. I was reading words that had a divine character and nature that was unmistakable to me all of a sudden. Um, the Spirit of God had, had lifted the, the veil from my eyes and I was seeing the words of God on paper. But at some point I'm, I'm up there on like a youth retreat. And there's 300 kids and there's candlelight and we're swaying to the music and singing, I love you, Lord, you know, and I had a transcendent experience. And I had one of those moments in which I felt something, felt God speaking to me. And that was it. Like, I was like, this is real. And then I was in. What happened there was a dramatic change in worldview. I went from an atheist who held my reason and my intellect and my senses, all of my faculties as the ultimate standard of reality. Now all of a sudden I have the word of God telling me from God things about reality that were different than I believed before. You know, it's funny, like, I'm, I'm totally secular now. So like, you know, I, I don't believe in any form of supernaturalism. So, like, I would have a different explanation for that experience. But when I'm with secular people and they're like, I bet you're embarrassed that you, that you say you felt the Holy Spirit or that you heard God speak to you. I'm like, oh, no, that happened. Like, I felt something. I heard a voice, you know. Um, people don't believe in transcendent experiences. I always say, like, haven't used the right drugs, um, haven't fallen in love with the right partner, haven't been to the right rock concert. Because like we've all had these experiences where we felt swept up in something bigger than ourselves. And I think whatever narrative you're in, when that happens, it confirms that narrative.
And so for me, I was in a Christian context. I was like, this is Jesus. Even though my heart was with Jesus, I wasn't really churched during that time. I didn't have a pastor during that time. And I think that made me vulnerable to some things. And, you know, traveling in the Christian music business, you go to all kinds of different churches. You go to the big mega churches with the celebrity pastors. You go to the small uh, little churches that just have a piano and not much else. And you see it all. And I think I began to become a little bit jaded. I just went, this, this can't be the real thing. Like, this can't be right. The emerging church movement began several years ago as a conversation among evangelical Gen X leaders who were alarmed at church dropout rates among 20s and 30s. About the same time, a pastor from Maryland, Brian McLaren, began writing about what he saw as a growing disillusionment with the way evangelical Christianity was being practiced. The two paths that came together to form the emerging church movement in the late 1990s were one was a group of people who were questioning the methods of church as big business. And I wonder about these multi-millionaire preachers who are fleecing their congregations and they watch their own people in dire poverty. They have this world's goods and they're not sharing what they had with those who are in need in their own communities. It scares me. And it's the emerging church movement actually was right in a lot of their criticisms of shallow evangelicalism, pragmatic evangelicalism. The entire millennial generation had, for the most part, those that had grown up as evangelicals, had grown up in children's church and then youth group movements where pretty much the emphasis was on fun and games, not teaching. And so it's a generation of people who were not taught scripture, and so they were pretty quick to throw it out. There's a sort of a comfort in knowing that, one, I don't have to have the answers, and that there aren't necessarily answers. Then you had another stream that was people who were questioning the theology, the doctrine, the core message of the gospel, like what's the gospel really about? And we were reading people who had been considered off limits by a lot of evangelicals. We were reading like feminist theology and liberation theology and things like that. But the idea was, look, times are changing. We're moving out of the modern realm and into the postmodern realm. And the distinctive feature of postmodernism was always skepticism. The, the modernist thought, we can know for sure what truth is because science will tell us. And postmodernism has given up on that fallacy and now concluded that really nothing can tell us for sure what truth is. We talked a lot about the Bible. How reliable and trustworthy is the Bible and how reliable and trustworthy are our interpretations and applications of the Bible. So we can't be absolutely confident that we know anything and therefore postmodernism is really the abandonment of certainty and, and knowledge. In fact, if there's one sin in the progressive church, it's the sin of certainty. Beware of people who charge in with certainty and Bible verses. And by the time Zoe Girl came to an end, uh, my husband and I had found a local, non-denominational, just run-of-the-mill evangelical church here in the heart of Middle Tennessee where I live. And we went to this church for about eight months. And after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of 
a bit of a deeper study group, an inner circle kind of discussion group where we would be studying the Bible, we'd be studying Christianity, theology. And so the class uh, unfolded, and then he revealed that although he didn't say this on Sunday mornings, he was actually more of an agnostic, and he called himself a hopeful agnostic. And he would bring up claim after claim against the Bible. A lot of it had to do with the reliability of the Bible, core doctrines that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And I wasn't prepared to answer. I'd never even heard of some of the questions, let alone have thought through some of the answers. I look back now, and I realize that what was happening was his deconstruction. Uh, When I think about what our podcast is, and even the word deconstruction, It's really, to me, as simple as just encouraging people to take part, to participate in their own spiritual journey. It's, I think, taking a more uh, mature look at your faith, taking ownership over your faith, really digging into it to determine what it is that I believe. And, And a lot of times what that means is kind of removing some of the things that you grew up believing, but certainly by no means getting rid of everything. Often when a Christian goes through a process of deconstruction, what they reconstruct to is something that doesn't look anything like historic Christianity. In my case, I went through that process of deconstructing. I didn't go quite to atheism. I always did believe that God was there, but it sent me into a crisis of faith, a really dark time of doubt where I would rock my baby in the rocking chair and just sing hymns into the darkness, just not even really sure that they were true. It was as if I had been thrown into the middle of the ocean with just these high, crazy waves with nothing, nothing to grab onto. And I said, God, send me a lifeboat. If Christianity is true, send me a lifeboat. Because so many emergents wanted to be politically correct, Even the moral foundations of Christianity were beginning to sort of crumble underneath them because they wanted to follow the spirit of the age and being tolerant and diverse. So you can't say homosexuality is a sin. So as a young Christian reading my Bible for the first time, I ran into things like the way God's Word talks about sexual sin. I had homosexual friends in high school and I I look at God's Word telling me that this is a sin and tried hard because I I love these people, I care about these people. I don't want to see their lifestyle as something that is sinful and needs to be repented of. And also on top of that, it's really culturally unpopular and frowned upon to think that way. There's been a lot of progress, so to speak, for that community in the last decade. We now see politicians have evolved on their stance on same-sex marriage. I have to tell you, as I said, I've been going through an evolution on this issue. I believe that marriage uh, is the union between a man and a woman. Now, for me as a Christian... I had gay roommates when I was in college, and they had been... You know, this was 1985. It was not okay to be gay in any part of Christian America, certainly not the conservative church I was growing up in. When I came out in favor of marriage equality... I lost work, I lost publishing contracts. But these guys, they were wonderful. And they had been gay from the moment that they were 
aware of themselves sexually. I'm straight, but I, I even know, like, being gay is not a choice. It's our lifestyle, it's who we are. It's not something that we choose to do, like lying is or something like that. Like, this is how we are born, how we feel. Bring the sense of Adam, sin and Pip into the world. Yes, I didn't even know what I did. We are born in sin. We are born with a sin nature. All men were born into sin. All men have a sin nature. We're all rebelling against the will of God apart from Christ. And I just don't think it's fair to tell us that how, how we feel every day and how our natural feelings come is wrong. That's just... Even if they honestly believe they were born that way, Jesus says you must be born again. It took me a long time to be open about that, but like very early on I realized like, look, the Bible's wrong about this one. It is important for me to go ahead and affirm that uh, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And when I look at the evolution of how not only our nation, but how professing Christians view this issue, you can definitely see how this particular sin has become somewhat of a line in the sand. And what I was faced with was the decision, am I going to trust what God says about this sin, or am I going to just go with what the world and my feelings say about this sin? There's a time when you have to look in the mirror and say, I have to go where my heart's leading me. I just knew too many wonderful Christian people who were in gay relationships. My dad has since come out in support of gay marriage, but for many years was not and was like, you've gone too far, because you know, I'm, I'm marrying gay couples, you know? And having been an atheist for years, I knew what following my feelings would get me. And I was done with that. To say that homosexuality is a sin is practically social suicide. Yesterday, CrossFit HQ fired Russell Berger for basically saying homosexuality is a sin. And I was watching a lot of my friends reject the Christianity they grew up with. And so I started to think, well, I'm not going to reject just what I was raised with, because maybe what I was raised with wasn't the real thing. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I need to find out what historic Christianity is. And if I'm going to reject Christianity, it's going to be that I'm rejecting authentic, real, historic Christianity, and not just something I was raised with. And you had a lot of people at the time arguing against us, saying, the methods change, the message never changes. Like, as though the gospel has never changed, which is, again, like theologically and historically unjustifiable. The message of the church has evolved. So there are some that would try to pit the gospel of Jesus against the gospel of Paul as if they were somehow saying different things or making different messages. Uh, I think the book of Romans is the wrong place to go to get a definition of the gospel. I think we have to get a definition of the gospel from Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where he's defining the gospel. But we have to see what the book of Romans is really about. It's a bad question that is not answerable. You cannot answer what is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That's not the gospel. Jesus was preaching the gospel before he died on the cross for sin. So like Mark chapter 1, Jesus starts preaching the gospel. What was he preaching? He hadn't died yet. Nobody had unpacked any of it. So it must be more than his death on the cross, or we wouldn't even have the Gospels. We would just have, Jesus died, here's some Paul. So if he went out and started preaching the Gospel, I know that no matter what, 
whatever he was preaching is different than what I've been told the gospel is. Yeah, yeah. As a boy growing up, it was explained to me that the Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus is himself the gospel, the good news. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist points to it. So in the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the Epistles, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, he's expected. The center of the message of both Jesus and Paul was Christ himself, Christ his work, and the response that says, I will submit, I will follow after Christ. I do not sum up the gospel. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to bait me into it. <laughs> Tony's right. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. I, I can't answer that. Yeah. The good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. We can reach out and touch it. Of course, that raises the question, what does the kingdom of God mean? Jesus preached the kingdom as the forgiveness of sins. Jesus bypassed the temple and its sacrifices by offering in his own person the forgiveness of sins. Let his enemies tell us who he was. The Pharisee says, who does he think he is, this man who imagines he has the power to forgive sins? Only God has the power to forgive sins. What a blasphemer. Paul stated plainly what the gospel was in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. But Jesus came preaching a gospel that said the kingdom is here and I'm the king. And wherever my reign and my influence is, there's the kingdom. And he's introduced the kingdom to all who have a broken and a contrite heart, poor in spirit. And so even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it plain that it is not our works that save us. He said at the very opening of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. The only people that belong to the realm of Christ are those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have no righteousness of their own. That's what poor in spirit means. And he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea being that, that the true Christian is someone who mourns over his sin, mourns over his lack of righteousness, looks at the perfection of God, looks at the perfection of his law, and says, I fall short. And he mourns over his personal inadequacy before a holy God. Jesus begins Mark, steps out in Mark's gospel. Uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What good news? That I am the light of the world. That I am the bread of life. That I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Gives his life for the sheep? Why would he give his life for the sheep? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I am the him, says Jesus. Anytime, anywhere, anyone has ever been saved, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The call of the gospel is a call to follow Christ. And Christ made that call. He said, follow me. Paul makes the call in the same way, saying, we preach Christ and him crucified.
Wow, that's a lot to digest, isn't it? A lot to think about. Um, Guys, I want to welcome you this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I hope that you've enjoyed this morning already. If you are a first-time visitor with us here at Christ Chapel, we're so glad that you're here. I hope that you had a chance as you came in for our greeters uh, to get to know you, to put a gift in your hand. We'd just like to know that you're here. So if you happen to miss them, uh, please make sure that as you're leaving today that you stop by that table and get some information about our church. We've got a lot of ministries going on throughout the week. Um, and Sunday morning, Sunday school. So I'm going to go ahead and ask them to play our announcement video really quickly. Then we'll have our time of offering, worshiping the Lord through that, and then we'll finish with our discussion about what we just watched. Okay, thank you so much for that voice in my ear. There's not an announcement video. Okay, just very quickly, guys. Please join us for Wednesday evenings. Um, our women's uh, and men's ministries, as well as some of our children's ministries, start at 6.30 to about 8 p.m. on Wednesday evenings. The hour prior to that on Wednesdays, um, we do have corporate prayer. So we try and meet here together in the sanctuary as a church body just to um, pray for our church and our city and our ministry um, before we have our um, evening ministries. Um, no Sunday nights uh, for for the next two weeks, so uh, be aware of that. But um, other than that, are we gonna have time of offering? Guys, we're gonna have our time of offering, and then um, Pastor John and Wade and Jason will come up.
All right, good morning, church family. Who felt a little overwhelmed after all of that? All right, good deal. So I wasn't the only one, I was just trying to make sure. Uh, one of the things after watching it a few times that really stuck out to me was the very beginning where they start off talking about the foolishness of the cross to an unbeliever. The gospel is foolishness to those that are in sin. And what kind of pressure that creates for a preacher to dilute the word of God so that it can become less offensive and more palatable so that they can maintain a sizable congregation. And if we look at the root of all of those motives, they're all temporal. I want to be liked by man. I want to be able to report to my pastor friends that my congregation is growing. I want to be able to fund this new ministry project. So you see pre preachers that are under that pressure, that's a baseline. That is, the Bible is telling me right now that the assignment I have to carry this world, word forth is going to appear as foolishness to very many people that hear it. That's a very encouraging word when you realize you are going to take that on or that God has told you to take that on. But how ministering is the gospel to those that receive it? And if we compromise the truth for the favor of men and we dilute the gospel and preach the gospel of demons because the, the scripture is clear. A little bit of leaven leavened the whole lump. So Pastor John's illustration that is, brings that a little closer to home, right? It's just a little bit of antifreeze in your Gatorade. It, it, it's good for the most part, but I know it's hot and you're sweaty and here's this Gatorade. I only put a little bit of antifreeze in it. It should be good for you, right? That's, that's not true. <laughs> Right? We, we all see the absurdity to that. But for some reason, when we see someone teach a comfortable gospel, the absurdity is not as clear to us. It doesn't jump out to us. It's like, oh, well, this person gets me. This person gets what it's like to deal with my struggles. We can empathize as preachers, and we can show compassion as preachers, but we are called to stand boldly on the firm foundation of truth that is the Bible. That is uncompromising. Amen. But there are pressures for it everywhere. The gospel, the gospel is supposed to be offensive. There's an offense to it. That's why it, um, our, our natural man recoils at it. And so when we present a gospel or when man teaches a way to God progressively instead of hopelessness. See, progressive means that I can start where I want progress at the speed that I want, do the things that I want, but the gospel message is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Your sins, my sins, when I say your, our sins, have separated us from God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so when you preach this message of the depravity of man, which means you were born into sin, when you were born... You had the sin nature that was passed on from your parents. We are not sinners because of our sins. We sin because we are a sinner. 
by, by, by uh, one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and passed it on to the other person, to the next person, to the next person. That's why Jesus is called the last Adam. Since we were born of Adam, we have the sin nature. When we are born again of the last Adam, we have a new nature. And in this politically correct uh, offend no one, we've removed the offense of the gospel, which makes it impossible to receive the grace of the gospel. We must qualify for salvation through our helplessness, not our efforts. And one thing that they said in there is he was like, you know, what they believed their podcast was. Remember they said that you take ownership of your spiritual journey. And as a hearer, you might hear that and be like, yeah, like, I, but that is counter to the gospel because the gospel says that we're spirit led. Like God leads us into these things, that the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us, who compels us, who pulls us. But yet, here is an idea that says now it's your responsibility. And so the onus or the weight of your salvation, the weight of your walk with God, the weight of who you are as a believer, then is rested on you. And that's counter to the cross because the cross says that God put that weight upon Jesus. And Jesus, as my elder brother, carried that weight, yeah. not me. So where's the hang-up, Jay, away the feelings? Where do our feelings come in? Because post-salvation, my feelings are literally the fuel of my worship. My gratitude, my overwhelming sense of debt and, and what I owe him, that's what makes worship real so it's, it's a critical part, but there has to be a separation where there's not a dependence upon. Well, what I think about feelings, I think they're an excellent expression. We, we feel that because of our relationship with God. We, we were dead in our trespasses and sin before that. What are we feeling before that? What are we, you know, but let me liven you up with some feelings beforehand. Let me lead you to the cross with positive feelings. And that is where we have set people up for failure. So you should always feel good. You should always feel positive. Here's some salvation. Continue to feel awesome. Or like you said, take ownership of your... So if you're not taking ownership of your spiritual development, if you're not make, doing these questions, you're immature. Well, the faith, our feelings become the creator, right? What creates. Right. So feelings don't create salvation, but they are a, an expression of salvation. And where, where we go wrong when we're appealing to feelings is we are, we're not letting the Holy Spirit do its work. Come here because I've made you feel like this is a good choice. I need to introduce the truth. The Holy Spirit does the convicting, and the Father calls you home. If I take that away from the dynamic as of someone who is presenting the Word, then I am relying on my capabilities. It is a man-centered, man-made gospel, and I'm connecting with you on a man-to-man, man-to-woman level. I'm shared experiences are the basis for the salvation. Here's the statement he made. I came to a place where I, I want to take ownership of my faith determining what it is that I believe. And that sounds, well, yeah, I don't want my mama's faith or my grandmother's faith or granddaddy's. I want my own faith. But instead of saying, taking ownership of my faith and determining what it is I believe, it would be more spiritually accurate to say, uh, I want to dig into God's Word and determine what it is that He said. Yeah. Not dig in and see what I believe. 
dig in and, and learn what he said and then change everything about my priority system, my belief system, and then my actions to prove belief into that. It's the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit it, that cr creates an opportunity for salvation. It's God giving you permission to repent. This invite Jesus into your heart. I, I understand how there's a part of that that's true because when a person is born again, Jesus comes to live in them. But that's not how salvation is made by inviting Jesus into your heart. It's believing the truth of the gospel that there is no other salvation except for his death, burial, and resurrection in the place of my sins and me submitting to that and repenting of my sins. You know, you have, we say you have to know what sin is so there can be conviction. You have to have conviction so there can be repentance. There has to be repentance before there can be forgiveness. And if you don't have forgiveness, there's nothing left but damnation. So this is not a feelings-based, even though you had feelings when you were saved. It was truth that brought you to salvation, not your feelings. But a lot of churches want to turn you on your feelings. They want to turn you on your emotions. They want to tap into that part of you. I mean, you see this in marketing, right? Um, you see this when you watch commercials on TV. Uh, they're going to put a family up there to make you feel the, the warmth of the family. They're going to create the scene. The colors are going to be perfect. There's a lot of that that goes on in church places where you have to dress a certain way. You have to wear the right thing. You have to be trendy in your clothes. Um, the music has to be done the right way. The lights have to be done the right way. It becomes this formula in which we attempt sometimes to appease God rather than Jesus being the mechanism by which God comes to us. Because I've done this for 30 plus years, I can speak about what I've seen. The vast majority of churches that I'm aware of, and I regret to say this, but even pastors that I know, their services are designed around the, the elephant in the room. Don't be offensive. Uh, they have to like you before they'll listen to what you say. You know, uh, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care, as if I've got to prove the gospel through an expression that makes you feel something. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it is a revealing, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of a man's heart. So we must be crystal clear that when you share your faith, and you should be sharing your faith, your first responsibility is to communicate to them the hopelessness of their situation. The gospel is that we are dead in trespasses and sin, the beginning part of it. And that without Christ, there is no trajectory. There is no uh, progressive, and which will, that'll get us into the emerging church, the progressive church, if you will. And before you guys start, I just want to throw this out, the progressive church. Progressing from what? Into what? The emerging church. Emerging from what? Into, into what? We are not progressing in the sense of, of truth. We might be progressing in our submission to it. But it is unchanging. So let, let's talk about the progressive or the emerging Before we church. go there, I just okay. want to hit one quick thing here. 
Jesus and Paul, they never checked with anyone's feelings, but they were not without compassion. So don't take what we're saying as feelings are not valuable or that you cannot have compassion because you got to have the nuts and bolts truth all the time and you have to be offensive in your delivery. Yes, offense is part of it, but Jesus and Paul in their ministry showed compassion to people. Think of Jesus as he's walking into the city gates and here comes a, a widow with her child, her only child, dead on a stretcher. He's filled with compassion. He has a feeling there and unsolicited, he comes over and just raises him for the dead and just says, you know, I see your broken heart and I'm here for you. Jesus meets you at a place of human need, and then he brings you to him through a quickening. There is an understanding of how lost we are. We bring nothing to the table. That woman didn't ask him. The child was dead. He didn't have to do anything. That is our story. Despite our condition, Jesus loves us. Jesus shows compassion on us, and Jesus brings us to himself. So, don't get, don't think, well, after, after this, I just got to go in, as Pastor John has given this great illustration, with a King James Bible on a dolly, just burning people's retinas out, because I'm supposed to be the light of the world. You know, that, that's not what we're supposed to do. There is a compassion element to it, and feelings are valid in a certain context, but feelings do not save you. Feelings on a compass have no true north. They go with the wind. Yeah. Let me run one parallel to that, where you just shared a story about Jesus. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, uh, Master, our great teacher, tell me what it is I should do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus was not preaching the gospel to him. He was trying to reveal to him his heart. And he said, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Uh, well, he told him to love God with all his heart. And he goes, yeah, I've done that since my birth. So he doesn't see his sinfulness. So now Jesus shifts the answer to show the sinfulness. He said, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the Bible says that he left and went away sorrowful for he was very rich. Notice that Jesus did not walk after him and lower the standard. Selling all that he had did not qualify him for the gospel. He did not see that he loved this world and money which disqualified him from receiving grace because there's nothing to repent of. You see, Jesus was trying to show him, no, you haven't kept these. You love God with all your heart, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You love money more than you love anything. And so there wasn't the conviction there. And the current among our ministry friends is if I preach something and you leave, I'm supposed to go to your house and water down what I said enough for you to come back because we have stopped being fishers of men and we're now keepers of the corral instead of being fishers of men. Wade? This uh, emerging church idea, it's, it's been around 20 years at least. Um, this idea has been in existence since the gospel, since Paul started preaching. I, this is not a new idea. It's been repackaged. And the enemy is very crafty in how he will word and move things. Um, the Bible lets us know how crafty he is. And these guys are very crafty, very subtle in the ways that they will come around. And so here are some guys, as they kind of brought out, who were questioning, they see some things are wrong in the church. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've seen something wrong. You see something, you say, well, I wanna change that. Um, I remember as a young man growing up in a church, I, you know, that we had a worship guy who would whip up 
everybody a little bit. And so there was a guy in service one day who got into the whipping up. And so he rips off his shirt and he's doing this. That's wrong. (laughs) I mean, I don't need much more to tell me that, that I don't know if that was supposed to happen. And, you know, you see things in church, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sad, that you go, well, this isn't right. And so then you have a group of guys, you come together, well, we need to redo this thing. It's, it's wrong at its core, so we're going to tear it down and rebuild it. And so this re- deconstruction and then reconstruction idea enters the church. Um, I remember as a young minister um, kind of being drawn into this a little bit. And I start reading these books of these guys and um, some of the guys on that list, uh, you know, I'm reading and dialoguing these things with friends of mine who are ministers and I'm seeing how that they're drinking this stuff up. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. They're leading us away from the gospel, the gospel being Jesus, that the Bible is Jesus. They're leading us away from these things. They're trying to reconstruct it around my efforts, my actions, social justice. Let me, let me say, when, when he said that uh, the part where he talked about preachers being multimillionaires and their people in their flock going without basic needs, and, you know, that was a correct criticism. That was, listen, my generation was TBN, PTL, and I struggled horribly when I got saved. I despised it, and, oh, it was the hip thing, the common thing, and... I remember when Jim Baker got into all his trouble, and I'm not going to get into the details of that, but our secretary at the church put on the bulletin board, you know, there's the Bible, and then there's the bulletin board outside her office, you know, and levels of authority. She, bring the Baker back club, and people were signing it. And I walked down the hall, and I ripped it off the wall. I was like, what? And so I got in trouble again for, you know, did you rip the... Sign off the wall and we, why would we bring it back? God finally closed it up. You know, that's what I was thinking. And the excesses and the obvious, uh, t- the, the TBN-ish uh, turnoff to m- most of the people. But just because that assessment is right, that's the inroad. So now since that's wrong, I now take that and apply it with a broad stroke to every local church. We're all wrong, so we must now reconstruct, and that word is broad, which not not only do we reconstruct the gospel, we reconstruct the faith, we reconstruct what the local church is to look like and what it's supposed to do, and we reconstruct it according to the desires of our heart. Because they're wrong, and of course we're right, we now build it according to the dictates of our heart, and our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And that, so our culture right now, it is not okay to point out sin. We are anti-confrontational on almost every front. Like if you have conflict or difference of opinion with someone, then you have to attack the morality of that person. So to stand in opposition to someone who has taken the moral high ground means you are immoral. And the way this video brought in the views of Bart Campello, uh, I know probably not everyone caught up with the name. So he was the bald guy, kind of skinny. Russell Berger, who was the CrossFit guy. And then Tony Jones, he is the man with the beard and the glasses uh, it, that says some really off-base stuff. So Bart Campello is saying, I'm reading the Bible, and it's, I know too many good homosexual people. 
the Bible's wrong on that. And I just felt. So his feelings indicated to him that he had the superior moral high road above the Bible. And then you have Russell Berger, who is raised as an atheist, who doesn't believe in God at all, and comes to a, a scripture that he has conflict with. He's like, man, this is hard to swallow, you know? I knew these people in high school. They were great people. I, I love them. I don't want to think that their whole lifestyle is a sin. And he said, but you know what? I've lived my entire life before Christianity with my feelings as the dictator. And I know where that gets me. So at this point, I have to take the word of God as truth. I, I cannot be manipulated by my feelings and talked out of my position of truth because it, it hit me some kind of way. Like, oh, that's people I know. Oh, I don't want to think badly of them. And then he loses his job for standing for truth, right? They're like, okay, well, you're fired. So there's a cost to discipleship, a cost for standing for truth. If he had never dealt with that and just said, well, I'm not going to deal with that, he'd still be a spokesperson for CrossFit. But where would he be with his relationship with God? Where would he be on his discipleship journey? Our, our sanctification is progressive in the nature that we come closer to God as we mature. And in that, he was able to take a mature stance while others walked it back. Tony Jones, the theologian who is a co-founder of the Emergent Church said, you know, I know so many good homosexual people and there comes a point where you just have to look in the mirror and know in your heart that the Bible is wrong. And okay, the Bible also says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who could understand it? You know, there's no hope for me if I'm relying solely on my heart and the interpretations that I glean based on how my heart feels. So you see these comparisons and how they dealt with a very similar issue where one stands for truth and one goes with their feelings. Yeah. Let, me, let me add one now to show it's not just the issue of sexual immorality. That word of God is uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts coming and going, especially if you wield it. So sexual immorality in the form of fornication, uh, sexual intimacy outside of marriage, adultery, being with someone that is married that's not your spouse, or you being married with someone else, homosexuality, you know, man with man, uh, woman with woman. But the love of money is also a sin. And the Bible says you cannot love God and money. Well, the church says, well, yes, you can. No, you can't. And that pride, that God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's not just siding uh, against the politically correct ideas. It's siding with truth which automatically pits you against politically correct. We are not called to be politically correct. We are called to be spiritually submissive to the Word of God. And this movement asks you to be a skeptic, which is, which is easy, right? It's easy to be a skeptic. It's easy, especially in our political climate and the other climates, it's easy for us to stand as a skeptic. And they're asking you to be a skeptic and to challenge everything. Well, to be honest, at my nature and my core, that's who I am. I'm a rebel, um, unfortunately. I grew up that way. I don't understand the full nuance other than that's who I am. <laughs> and so in, in a lot of ways, I do challenge 
when someone tells me something, I have to prove it wrong in my head, you know? And then I'm like, wait, I gotta stop. <laughs> and, and here's, the, they're pushing this to you and they want you to be uncertain about things. They're saying the sin now for the progressive church is uncertainty. And, and so they want, is certainty. And so they want you to be uncertain and they want you to question and challenge these things. And so what they have to do is you have to tear down the establishment to rebuild it. And for them to have a voice, they've got to tear down the other voice. And so they want to tear down the other voice so they can raise themselves as a voice so they can then become the experts in the room. And so then they want to tell you that there's no experts except me. I'm the expert. And so, no, 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 they're not the expert. Oh, they're not the expert. But you should trust me because I'm the expert and I've, I've got it right. Figured it out. When they introduced the emerging church in the documentary, they said evangelical Gen Xers became alarmed at the dropout rate of those between 20 and 30 years old. So what did they do? They started questioning methods. That's okay. And then they start questioning message. That's a problem. Okay. If you're experiencing a dropout rate, their conclusion was we need to change the message and the, the presentation to retain people. They didn't come to the conclusion that maybe our methods are wrong. Let's get out into the marketplace and preach the truth. Let the Holy Spirit work through us to bring people into the church. I'm just worried that the people that I have here, they're not coming back. Well, if they have become offended and left because they are in a season of rebellion and are rejecting the truth, then you can try to counsel them and minister to them, but we never compromise the truth. We do not compromise the message to get that person back into the fellowship of the church. And I think that's an important point. And also, Elisa Childs, the Zoe girl singer, she said when she traveled so often, she did not have a pastor and that made her vulnerable. So it's important that we do plug into a fellowship of believers, but we have to discern that truth is being taught. That should be the primary number one thing on our checklist of where am I going to go to church. It shouldn't be how far is it from my house, what programs do they have for my kids, what kind of fellowship dinners do they have. It should be are they teaching biblical truth and am I being edified? And am I being prepared to enter the marketplace and present the gospel to those around me that are lost? I want to add to that being the pastor of this church. And I want you to hear me well, unashamedly, I tell you this. Many of us, even consumer shopped on deciding this place as a place of worship. What does it have for my kids? Do I like the women's Bible study? Do I like the men's Bible study? And I understand we have to be fed and watered and we have to have community. But I'm telling you as a pastor that if you do not believe that this place is the most conducive, lo most conducive local church to your spiritual growth, allegiance to Christ, and fruitfulness in ministry. You should go home and ask God, where is that place? And make that place your home. I would, if I was not allowed to preach or my hour is up, uh, and have done it in the past, um, and there are people here, friends of mine that drive 30 and 40 minutes, I would drive by all of them to a place where I could say, today I heard his word, today I sensed his presence, and today I'm responding to the Christ, the person of Christ. 
And that needs to be why we go where we go. I want to read this. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes here left. And the emergent church preaches a popular gospel. A popular gospel, by that I mean acceptable to the masses. And by that you have to take the offense of Christ, the offense of the cross out of the way. The Bible speaks in one place of two types of people. Either you fall upon the rock of Christ and it breaks you. Or in the end of your life, the rock falls upon you and you are crushed. The Bible tells us that if the gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach how to make your life better, although being a Christian does make it better. We don't teach you how to obtain, how to go to the next level, how to... Um, be the envy of others, how to find favor. We preach Christ and the nearness to Him and allegiance to Him. It's a changing gospel according to them. He said if there's, if there's one absolute in the emerging church, it's beware of certainty. It is a contrary gospel. Contrary means opposite in nature, direction and meaning, and false gospel. It's a contrary false gospel. It's a powerless gospel. This woman said that her pastor was a hopeful agnostic. That sounds warm and hallmarkish, and you go, oh, pudding. You know, uh, <laughs> a hopeful agnostic. Like, doesn't, the, doesn't that phrase make you want to say, he's been journeying for a long time, but he's still holding on. Blessed be his name. That's what it makes me feel like, you know. Agnostic means a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or of anything beyond material phenomena, a person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. The uh, emergent church is a man-centered gospel. It's a spiritless gospel. It is, in fact, a demonic gospel. Even though Christ's name is mentioned and verses are quoted, when you change the nature, the identity, the nature, the revealed will of God and alter his laws and commandments. It is satanic. Listen to this phrase, this verse, 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking, promulgating erroneous Christian doctrine, lies, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And finally, it's an accursed gospel. Paul said, if any man preach another gospel, another Christ, let him be accursed. So when you see someone speaking gentle, that does not mean they have the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. When in the moment on the stage they are practicing self-control, that does not mean it's the fruit of self-control. But the spirit, when the Holy Spirit creates the fruit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. The way we know that fruit from natural fruit is that this fruit points to the person of Jesus Christ and Him alone. They'll say every good thing, any good thing that's ever come from my life is by the grace of God and the, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the resident Christ in me. We are not part of an emerging church, Christ Chapel Macon. We are not emerging. We are being transformed 
into the image of Christ. We are journeying, but we're not journeying into greater truth. We're journeying to Zion, our heavenly home. And although we might mature and see richer and deeper things out of the law and out of the Word, you need to understand that it is not changed. As a matter of fact, Christ said, not one punctuation point, not one jot or tittle of the law shall dissipate before the end of the age, before it's finished, till all is fulfilled. So we are not emergent. We are not progressive. I hope we are progressing, but we are not progressive. The truth is complete, and it is ours. I think where uh, that is so good, Pastor, but um, I just want to add this little piece Please. in the documentary where Tony Jones, the theologian with the beard and glasses, says it, it's a bad question. You can't answer what is the gospel. And he also stands up the idea that it is not historically justifiable to say that the message has never changed. And then we get the truth. So that is a fallacy. And then I forget the fellow's name, but he came forward and he said, anytime, anyone, anywhere has been saved, it has been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a summation of the gospel. The gospel did begin in Genesis, and it concludes in Revelation. The death, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the crux of the gospel. And we can sum it up saying it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. But we, it is logically in error to say that that message has changed over a period of time. It, their message has not become different. Not the true message, not the biblical message. God said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he speaks, it is truth. God cannot lie. So the message has not changed because I don't understand by what cosmic mechanism yeah. that you, I don't, I might not understand all the chemistry about water changing to ice. I know it makes my drink cold. Okay. If somebody asked me to explain ice to somebody, I said, it makes your drink cold. Hey, you know, Jack, that's over hold on right here. Guys, do y'all have that queued up at 18 minutes, 30 seconds? It's only 15 seconds, but if you have that, put that back on the screen. To see what the book of Romans is really about. It's a bad question that is not answerable. You cannot answer what is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That's not the gospel. Jesus was preaching the gospel before he died on the cross for sin. Did anybody else, your spirit, just turn over at the flippancy? And see, discernment. You can be brand new in the Lord and not know Malachi from TJ Maxx. And your spirit go, that's wrong. He's wrong. He's evil. How can you say that? Because of the, the tone that he used about the core message of God's expressive love to us. I love when the man said this. When Jesus was, he said, well, the deconstructionist and that other Pop-Tart, I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> listen, don't get mad at me. I see how it damns millions of people. And if you're more offended that I would say Pop-Tart than you are that people go to hell because of this teaching, then just defriend me and take a number, you know. Uh, 
Well, Jesus was preaching a gospel long before he died, so that lets me know that there's more to the gospel than Jesus died for my sins. When Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, what he was saying is the forgiveness of sins is found in me. That's what he was saying. I am. I am. I am am him. I am am him. What's that verse? Uh, What the guy said, I am the he. I love that. That was probably my favorite statement in that. I am the he when he. Where is it? Because I've got it written down. Oh, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the him. I am the him. All right, wait. Amen. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, sister. Wait, I'll give you three minutes to sum up, Jason. And if y'all will bring the pulpit right here, I'm going to... Three minutes. That's almost impossible. No, just one more point. Just one more point. The, you know, he was talking about as a kid, he had learned this, that the Bible's a full narrative. And we have to read the Bible as a full narrative picture of Jesus. Everything should bring us to Jesus, his centrality, the person, the act, the perfectness of Jesus. And he said, in the Old Testament, he's predicted. And it was a great statement that he made. That the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts, he is preached. That's good. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelations, he is expected. The whole Bible should point us and center it to Christ in that everything we read should scream and yell about Christ from the gospel, from the Genesis in the garden when they'd sinned, when God came and he made a substitute death, a substitute penalty for their sin. That should point us to Christ. When Noah builds the ark, that we should know the only way that we escape the wrath of God is that we enter through the ark and that ark is Jesus. And throughout the whole narrative of the Old Testament, it predicts that Jesus is coming. And in the gospel, he reveals himself in the acts they preach about it. In the epistles, Paul goes through and explains it in deeper. And in Revelations, John gives us this encouragement that we should expect his return. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Jay. Thanks. Top, top that, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Might have to bow out of Say that Say yeah. So the, the idea is that we have transitioned as a culture from modernism to postmodernism where once before we believed there was a baseline of solid fact to work from. Now that is being undermined. That foundation is being broken. And I would like to stand here and boldly proclaim for all listening online and everyone here that there are some facts we can know about the gospel. No matter what anyone says, no matter what degree of education they have, no matter how long they've been practicing their field of study. Original sin damned us all. The gospel has never changed. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Period. Those are facts. That is not an exclusive list. That is not a holistic list. But those are facts that every believer should be able to leave here standing firm on today. Will you have questions about some things? Yes. Are some things stirred up you're frustrated about? You want to see how this cake turns out? Yes. Join us next week. I look forward to it. But uh, stand on those truths. Amen. And that's what I have. Brooke, if you'd come up, please. Thank you, guys. Y'all can go ahead. Y'all give them a hand this morning.
and just, just think we were going to try to originally do two uh, parts of the video, which th that, that wouldn't have worked. I want to read to you just a moment, and then I want to pray, and I want us to give, I want to give you an opportunity to worship the Lord joyfully. I'm grateful today that I'm certain. I know, I know whom I've believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know that my sins were scarlet and now they're white as snow. I know that even though I remember my sins, the Lord chooses not to bring them up again. I know that where he is, he wants me to be also. I know that I'm bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. I know as far as the east is from the west, he's removed my transgressions from me. I know that my righteousness is as filthy rags, but his righteousness is blindingly bright. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for me. And he offered within himself Jesus, the gospel. This is the gospel. That Christ offered in himself the forgiveness of sins. This is why he could say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how he could forgive sins before the cross. The kingdom is here and I am the king. So wherever my influence is and where my reign is, there is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, the gospel, I'm the hymn. Today he tells us, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I'm the serpent lifted in the wilderness. I am the burnt offering. I am the trespass offering. I'm the scapegoat that takes your sins from where you live to a place where you do not live. I am the word that has been since the beginning, the first and the last. I'm the one who became sin for you even though I did not know sin personally. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We said it twice already, and I want to conclude this morning. Jesus would say to you, contrary to a man saying, we cannot answer the question, what is the gospel? Jesus would say, I am the gospel. I'm it. Would you just bow your head a moment? What would you want to tell him? It could be a sentence or two. What, what would you tell him this morning? I can hear it in my heart. Some saying, you're it for me. You're it. There's no one else. Your death was sufficient. Your provision is exclusive. And he is mine. He is mine. Blessed be his name. 
Church, would you stand with me this morning? And I'm, I'm not looking for, this ain't amen corner. I want you to look at me. Are you certain? I'm asking you. Any doubt? Any reserves? Is there anything you can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ? Is he exclusively it? Not Jesus plus something else. Or Jesus plus someone else. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to Christ Chapel. That don't help you. I shook John's hand. Might as well shake a donkey's tail. It doesn't help you. I didn't ask you where you go to church. I asked you who, who is your gospel? So, I know we have worshipers in this place. Now, some of y'all, some of y'all, you're going to be nervous in heaven. I, that's all I need to tell you. You're going to be like, Lord Jesus, where, where's the quiet going? You're going to be nervous. But this, this song is going to start out a little slow and then give you a chance. And I chose this song to close service because it talks about the certainty of forgiveness. I've tasted and seen that the Lord, Kristen, he's good. He's good. I can't be any more flawed and he can't be any more good. So if you got anything in you alive, you might want to tell you people just, y'all need to distance, social distance just a little bit. Because I might knock that wig or weave off. You need to move, scoot over. We're going to, I might mess you up here. Turn this on for us, guys, would you? And then Pastor Chris is going to come and close for us. Your grace, God, I need it every day. 
Heavenly Father, in the midst of our uncertainty, you are certain. In the midst of our weakness, you are strength. In the midst of our sin, you are salvation. In the midst of our inabilities, you are perfectly sufficient. God, each one of us carry our baggage. Each one of us has been hurt. Some in church, some by Christian people. God, each one of us had looked at it and wished it could be done different. But salvation is not found in men, in us. It is not found in our intellect and in our abilities. It's not found in our way to do something, our programs or our processes. It is found in the finished work of Christ. And we stand sufficient in that alone today, knowing we don't have to know everything, but in knowing that you supply all our needs, everything in Christ Jesus. That where we don't know the answer, you are the answer. Where we don't have confidence, you are our courage. And so today, let us leave this place today knowing that in man it is not found, but in Christ we stand. On that solid rock we stand. God, thank you that you would do that in us, that you would sure our feet. God, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the raging, flooding waters, you would steady our feet. Thank you. God, as we look at our climate, our culture climate today, God, the waves are bashing the shore. But like the lighthouse that stands, you steady our feet. So we thank you, Jesus. God, let us walk away today in full assurance, in full steadfast, knowing how secure we are in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now before you run out, I just have to yell out this one word, amen, right? Amen, amen. All right, now youth versus staff is today. We're having it right next door, not outside because it would be a mud bath in fact, instead of football. So we're gonna have it right over here. The best way, if you'll please listen, to try to keep this as, uh, as orderly and as uh, COVID friendly as we can, uh, we're gonna make our way this way we're going to raise this really large garage door. That way there's plenty of room to walk around. And there are hot dogs, drinks, and chips as you walk there. Free hot dogs. And everyone is invited. We're going to play. Now listen, I'm, going to, um, I'm making it two 15-minute halves. So it's going to be quicker. We normally have it like a little more footballish, but I'm doing two 15-minute halves only in a running clock. So it shouldn't take long. So don't just come and have fun with us. And walk this way right here. If you have kids, I do understand you have to go get them, but come on this way. We would greatly appreciate it. Come on and join us. Oh, let me pray over the food real quick. That way we don't have to worry about it. Real quick, y'all ready? Dear Lord, thank you so much for these hot dogs, chips, and drinks. I ask you bless them in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.